0: A friend of mine, she said, hey, LaShawn, we're working on this secret project at Microsoft, we'd love for you to come back and join us. I came back at about $35 on the Microsoft price. The ability to earn money in big tech, I think a lot of times folks just underestimate it. The absolute dollar amount, I actually made more money over the years at my time at Microsoft than that initial seven-figure exit that I made selling my little mobile app company
1: welcome to tech careers and money talk the podcast for financially focused technology employees are you working for equity do you have questions on how your career and money work together then welcome every week we discuss strategies and tactics for how to grow your career build wealth and reach your financial and lifestyle goals welcome to tech careers and money talk i'm your host christopher nelson we want to understand how do we go from building equity and technology companies to our own personal exit. For many of us, the exit means many different things. We need to see examples of what success really looks like in a personal exit. I'm excited to introduce you today to LaShawn Smith. LaShawn is a technology employee who's worked for larger companies like Microsoft and Amazon, and he has exited financially independent to run a micro PE company a set of companies that he is the owner, operator of, owns them outright, and their main metric is cash flow, is he wants to see that cash flow increasing year over year so that he can make more investments and they also can provide a living for himself. Today, we're going to talk in the first half of the show around what were the skills that he built in tech companies to allow him to make this transition to running a micro PE firm second half of the show, you're really going to want to stick around for us. We're going to break down the components of this business, how he built it, how he runs it, how he operates it today, so that you can really have clarity on how you can go from equity to exit. Let's go talk with LaShawn now. Okay, thanks for joining us here today. I am so excited to introduce you to LaShawn Smith. LaShawn Smith is the founder and managing principal of Kager, but he started his career in big tech like many of us. I'm talking Microsoft, Amazon, Deloitte, and built a lot of skills to then transition into this business that he now owns and allows his financial independence. Interesting point is he started his career as an entrepreneur, 10 years old, on the
0: playground, selling Chica sticks. Welcome, LaShawn. Hey, Christopher. Great to be here. And for folks who don't know, uh, Chico (laughs) Stick is this kind of peanut buttery um, kind of candy, so anyone with allergies will want to stay away, but... Uh, I figured, hey, sugar sales. So I learned some of the basics of consumerism early on.
1: Well, and it's so interesting that, you know, when when I read your story, read your background, you were so entrepreneurial growing up, but you made the decision to start your career in big tech. I'm curious why that was, why you decided to move to big tech instead of creating something of your own early on
0: yeah well, maybe before and after aren't the best words for me to describe it, uh, and it's really been um, kind of this windy journey and so I had attempted to start other businesses before that and really didn't have the right operational muscle. I have uh, you know pretty good product instincts, and technically um, you know I was pretty strong, but you know I was that guy out there building the product hunting for the customer, and so I had the whole kind of pyramid inverted and you know, wasn't validating the market properly, wasn't sorting out the go to market. Like I was doing everything backwards, right? And I was like, well, um, you know, I can write a great piece of software that no one wanted. And so what I found was the you know folks that I respected started to find their way into some of these larger companies, and you know I would get opportunities, and eventually it worked out where you know kind of that guy, something that was you know quite interesting to me that I could add value to that I got energized by, and uh, we can get into this maybe later in the conversation. Not only was that great from a skill stacking standpoint, but it actually you know, connected me and, and helped me learn how to think about money. And so I don't believe those two are decoupled, and so I always you know, try to, you know, bring this into the story in that it wasn't just like, oh, I got this job. I learned this skill. I started the business. Um, You know, it was kind of this expansionary thing that was, it happened very organically. I didn't have a master plan. I got very fortunate to uh, have a great set of coaches, mentors, and sponsors. And really the only thing I can take credit for was, you know, I kept showing up.
1: I think that's very insightful where, you know you know your weaknesses, you know where you need to fill a gap and there is such a big opportunity in big tech that I feel gets a bad rap sometimes. Many mm-hmm. people think, well, the the real work is being done on the startup side. I found for myself the same thing, that I had an entrepreneurial spirit, but there were so many things I didn't know. And I knew that going to work for big tech, my first role was at Accenture, and I got the opportunity to be in a lot of different environments, a lot of different company environments, seeing how businesses worked. And that to me was again, this exhaust that you get of working in these larger companies is you get this on the job MBA and understanding how business works at the same time as your skill stacking, your technical and soft skills as well that I think is really valuable. I'm curious what were, you know, as you started transit, you know, going from, I know my my strengths to now participating in larger tech. How did that skill stacking work for you?
0: Yeah, so if we use, I like frame, frameworks uh, to kind of put some context to the conversation. Uh, there's the BXT triangle that PWC has uh, kind of business experience technology. Um, and I like that because, you know, a lot of what I've learned has been in kind of different disciplines and I've tried to figure out ways to kind of fuse them together. And so if I think about the business side of things, Again, I just really was green on how to really think about go to market and scaling. I had a, a fear that I've coached folks on that I got over pretty early on selling. So I was like all about the selling part of this, right? So you're like, throw LaShawn in a room, put him on a plane, like, like all good. Um, and so even later into my career, I would get these kind of side jobs in you know in corporate america where you know i was effectively doing you know tech sales to the c-suite they would just kind of pawn me off they're like hey you put the in the room he'll kind of figure that out so i was pretty good there but the actual kind of sales operation process you know how to manage your funnel both high touch and low touch so the marketing side as well it was just like a random hodgepodge bag of activities and like i, I just really needed to see what great looked like to start pulling that together the other piece on people was I could write, you know, a JD that I copied from a peer and it's like, all right, this looks pretty good. Um, It's just like, all right, let's just scout and hire folks. But to really look at what kind of the talent pipeline process looks like, um, how to write, you know, an amazing job description, you know, bespoke one-offs, you know, not that you're copying, pushing it so far on the limit that someone in PR or someone else might say, you're giving too much of the background. Our competitors are gonna be reading these job descriptions uh, to do competitive intelligence um, to really make folks fit Feel like, okay, they took the time, I understand what this is also to get people to opt out that process. Uh, one of the things that was really great during my Amazon experience was kind of the rigor of the interview process and how you kind of rethink uh, the idea of, uh, you know, kind of multiple board based interviews, especially bringing folks outside of the hiring chain into the process where those folks don't have anything to lose to say, not inclined on an interview, right? Um, they're just like, I'm here to hold the bar for our hiring practices. And how you can you know, kind of bring those all together. One quick anecdote that uh, was very helpful in that process was uh, the tool that we use to provide your feedback. Uh, you cannot see the vote. Everyone had a thumbs up or thumbs down uh, and all the notes for whatever leadership principles you were interviewing on. You didn't see the vote or the notes of the other interview folks on the panel until you submitted yours. Uh, And so it's almost this like game theory thing where you're just like, (laughs) "Ah, what do I put here? And and it forced you to to tell the truth, um, or at least just to be more thoughtful and say, all right, I'm not going to go with the group thing. You know, what, what are my real feedback? So those are all things there. And then just practically on the technical side, you know, how to think about, you know, distributed systems and to kind of build technology and teams. You know, it's funny when I see a college hire show up with a computer science degree, and they go into a tech role, uh, kind of their first job out of college. And so many just, you know, need to get their interpersonal skills up or, you know, really understand the hygiene and the implementation of maybe how, you know, source control is managed on a certain company Um, because it's not so much about the tools and the tech, it's a bunch of humans saying like, okay, am I empowered to make this change myself? Is there a committee that needs to review? You know, there's all these, these things that are really about kind of the human interaction And all of that was goodness um, that I took from that. Um, the the very brief counter to that set of experiences is, you know, many times, especially at large established companies, not just big tech, um, what you see is folks are nervous. You know, I had a buddy who worked at Coke and I say, what's your real job? He's like, don't break Sprite. Um, because like, <laughs> you know, you're measuring your wins and basis points, like everything is so, you know, you're at scale. And so many times there is a very, very high level of risk aversion. Uh, I used to call them the no police, you know, the, the lawyers would show up, you know, some compliance officer would show up and, you know, all well-intended, but they had been incentivized to slow things down. And I like to say that, you know, large companies move in months and years, a well-run startup is, is, you know, a growth startup should be running in weeks. Uh, and if you're very early stage, you know, ideation to precede, maybe even seed, you need to be running in hours. Like you have to move fast. And so that's a thing that I've tried to learn to remind myself um, to do the opposite of, of the big tech. But um, the list of what I learned is much deeper than the the, the things not to do.
1: Well, and, and to recap that, I think that that's very interesting because what you learn there and the takeaways are super valuable for people who are operating startup companies. And I'm curious how, you know, we'll talk a little bit later how this maps to what you're building now or have built now. but. You talk about understanding where you had your zone of genius, like you were in the sales, but the operations part. You didn't understand that. And you have a chance to see a pattern of what success looks like. And I think that that is so valuable. If you see that two or three times, if you see the people, processes, and tools that come together to make something successful, a successful process work, that's going to be stamped in your memory for a very long time. Then it's, how do I hire correctly? How do I look beyond the textbook, okay, yes, I go put out a job description, somebody applies, but if you put more effort in up front and you're truly running it like a candidate magnet where you want to attract the candidates you want, you want to push away the candidates that, that you don't want, all of those things, if when you go to start your own company and you just have those two things alone, Superpowers, then you get this experience that says, now I also understand at scale what it looks like when you get to very large distributed companies, distributed systems. And, you know, there's some fragility. There's also um, some value in that. But then how do you scale that back and say, what do I need to do if I am a smaller, you know, medium-sized company, startup company, or seed company? All of those lessons are really important for us to digest here, because that's what's going to allow us to work for larger companies and then to scale ourselves in building other things that we want later.
0: Yeah, 100%. And something you said there that is worth underscoring, sometimes I feel there is this inclination for folks to believe small company doesn't need to scale big company, everything is scale is scaling. And I've seen so many times where you know, some really smart technical architect is overbuilding something at a big company that has no business ready to scale because you haven't validated uh, and gotten to the right the right place, and people are. Again, you know, they're driving toward their incentives and they're like, all right, our OKRs or some set of goals say that we need to get this metric by this target by this date. Uh, And so that means, of course, we need all this redundancy. Of course, we need all these microservices. Of course, of course, of course, of course. And it's like, stop it. You can run this thing on a single node server, make sure the customer wants to give us money for this. And then we'll go figure out what to change. And invariably what happens, as you know, what you built is not what they exactly wanted anyway. And so a lot of times all that premature optimization doesn't really help. And so I really have tried to embrace this idea that, you know, your customer will tell you when it's time to kind of get into the, the scaling stage, um, it's tempting to do that when you have, you know, a larger set of resources, which can sometimes be a curse when you're inside of a large, well-funded organization.
1: And this demonstrates to me why leadership and and having broad oversight of what's happening in the broader tech community is important to bring that home and being able to say, we need to be nimble now. We don't need to be scaling. I, I just see that, you know, pervasive throughout technology that, good leadership is critical to understand how to make uh, business decisions that are best for the customers. Yeah, totally. I'm curious, with your experience in big tech, did you start getting an understanding, you know, you worked for Microsoft, you worked for Amazon, you started seeing, oh, owning shares, being part owner in these companies was something that was beneficial to you, understanding the equity component?
0: Oh, 100%. So I'll go through this quickly, but I think the chronological uh, flow is helpful. Uh, I've started four plus businesses. Uh, I'll give you one of the pluses, uh, but uh, four four businesses where I was the operator prior to the company I run now. Uh, the first was a agency. I just kind of gave up and I was like, oh my goodness, this is really hard. I do not want to be in this business. So basically just shut it down. The second was a SMS to large stadium screen um, uh, marketing tech software where we were kind of Working with brands to say, "Hey, we're going to give you all these phone numbers when you sponsor, you know, this campaign inside of a stadium." And uh, the tech was actually pretty good. We uh, we, we had landed, you know, MLB, um, NBA. Like we had we had done some some made some real progress uh, with that. Uh, that one ended up as an aqua hire, uh, and so it wasn't you know it wasn't the the worst business, but uh, it was like, oh my goodness, we're going to need this crazy sales team in like every football city. Um, I was like, all right, this is more. Of a sales company than it is a technology company. Um, I worked on a, um, a money transfer system, and uh, again, we underestimated the biz dev. Uh, this was before Western Union would go into high risk places, and you know all the banking and regulatory issues. Like it was like, all right, Lashawn, you are doing dumb stuff. Um, so there was there was a plenty plenty of these. Uh, I started a mobile enterprise company that would connect ends like SAP and other things uh, to to uh, iOS. Uh, kind of development uh, in the early days of the iPhone. And that was the company that I sold. And we just kind of found this kind of arbitrage window where, you know, sales teams and other folks needed to get this data. And, and, you know, kind of today, which sounds laughable, you know, you'd have like some REST API, get a token and off you go. We built a whole company around the inefficiency of that um, because folks were, they were so frightened, you know, that like this data leakage would like have their data all over the place. And so everything was kind of like batch data warehouse processes where it's like two days ago was the the most recent sales data you could get and we said like oh we could do this in real time and it was like magic uh so that was the first the first exit but the reason i run through those is you know all of those were you know lashon coming from a place of i think i have the right idea i'm gonna go give this a shot but there was no clear strategy even the one that worked i can't take any credit um again i just kept showing up um but here's the the punchline back to your question when um, when I exited that last company, I did all sorts of things wrong. Um, you know, fortunately, we didn't have any out- outside capital when we sold, and so it was it was a good outcome for um, for the company. But uh, you know, my tax strategy was all broken. You know, uh, we closed the deal toward the end of the year, so I didn't even have time to learn on how I could reposition and maybe get some offsets or you know get some accelerated depreciation with another asset, like. All the basic one on one stuff that someone will sit you down. It's like, all right, you're going to have a bunch of money in your bank account. You should probably go, you know, get some experts to help you get ready. Uh, Another thing is, I really disliked, you know, kind of being in handcuffs on not being able to build and, I didn't have the right discipline. And uh, so I broke my earn out. Uh, And so, you know, there was, there's money left on the table. So there was all sorts of things that was really kind of unforced errors on my part where it was just like, I just fumbled the ball. And in spite of all of that, this is what I love about tech, the tailwinds of the industry, you know, the the way cash flows, like I still made out um, really well. Right. And so in spite of not knowing you can still win like that to me is like the thing I get excited about. And just a quick anecdote, when I started that business, I was I was a boomerang at Microsoft. And so that means I was there. I left to start a company and then I ended up coming back. And I'll I'll tie this all to your question because it's very relevant. Um, I had about a quarter million dollars in RSUs and I was like stressing out because I was pretty young. And so I was like, goodness, this is like a quarter million dollars of unvested, you know, RSUs. Uh, When I leave, this is just this just gone. And when I finally found the courage. Uh, I, I was like, I had the conviction, like this is going to work, LaShawn. Like, like we're gonna, we're not gonna do the dumb stuff we did last time. You know, we're gonna figure out this sales motion. Um, you know, we're gonna go pre-sell and get all the right, you know, kind of contracts in place earlier in the process um, before we start writing code. So all of those th- those lessons, uh, you know, I did, but I was still terrified of giving up this relatively small amount of money. And it was funny. I was I was talking to my CPA a few months into the the business that I started after I left. And I said, Is this the right amount of cash in the account? And it was almost $800,000 in the bank account. And it was like, I had this moment, I was like, Oh, my goodness, I was so stressing over this small, tiny bit of money. And now just, you know, our working capital, um, you know, for this bootstrap software company was, uh, you know, was, you know, a couple, you know, two, three uh, magnitudes uh, bigger than that. So anyway, that was an interesting kind of transition. But When I decided to go back into big tech, um, the reason I was trying to think, you know, I had a mentor who said, hey, LaShawn, if you have something that you're really convicted around and you're going to really stick to it, like, yeah, I can't tell you what to do. But if not, you should probably go hang out someplace where you can be energized, you know, add some value um, and you're not being tempted to do reckless thing with your capital. And I was like, "All right, I'm gonna listen to this person, somebody I trust, uh, been a friend for many years, who had been very successful." And um, so, a friend of mine that I knew, uh, she said, "Hey, LaShawn, we're working on this secret project at Microsoft. We'd love for you to to come back and uh, uh, join us." And at this point, I knew a lot more about how to structure the contracts. I knew a lot more on how to. Think about leveling, you know, so many different things. But the real punchline was I structured a really, really healthy um, stock package. And uh, you know, for folks who know the history of big tech, uh, I came back uh, at about thirty-five dollars uh, on the Microsoft price. And then you know, there's I think there was at least one split during that during that window. But um, the ability <coughs> to earn money, you know, in big tech, like to your point, I think a lot of times folks just underestimate it. And if you look on the um, the absolute dollar amount, I actually made more money over the years at my time at Microsoft than you know that initial seven-figure exit that I made uh, selling my little mobile app company. Um, and you uh, know that's the thing, right? When when I talk to folks, many times people are like, Oh, this is LaShawn, you know, he sold his company. They never say, Hey, this is LaShawn, you know, he worked as an engineering leader and he like made some money <laughs> at, at this corporation, right? But but when you look at the actual numbers, uh, you know, getting that timing right uh, was really critical. And just putting a bow on this story. Um, You know, the way I've leveraged big tech in general um, has been looking for these technology inflection points where you get to whether you're an individual contributor and a manager or, you know, an executive, you get to show up at the party where no one knows what what the answer is and you know it's kind of the peter till zero to one um i love that space because if you grind you move with conviction you you show clarity and you iterate quickly you will just iterate to the answer faster than anyone you know, any of your peers, and you will be rewarded. And so there's a whole lot of goodness. And that's just been kind of my playbook, um, you know, kind of bouncing back and forth uh, between these learning from both sides of the fence.
1: There's a lot to unpack there. But I think first and foremost, so many people think the money is in the early stage startups, and they pass over the fact that if you're slow and steady for big tech, number one, you're going to be taking dollars off the table in years where, you know the startups there's no liquidity so you yeah. think about the time value of money there's an opportunity there to you know start building a a financial fortress i also really enjoyed your specificity around looking for inflection points because there are different times even right now you think about ai ai is a very interesting inflection point to start inserting yourself into companies where in, in those specific companies, non-AI companies, they don't know the answer and they're looking for people that can have conviction, iterate quickly in a direction and, and roll up some things with clarity. I think there's a lot of interesting opportunity in big tech today. So you and I were talking earlier about the fact that we get into big tech and it is easy to get comfortable, to maybe lose some vision, to you know be sleeping in our silk sheets, as they say. <laughs> But then you start getting a desire to to move on and, and really understand, well, what's next for you? When at what point did you start realizing my time? And, and maybe it isn't a clarity of my time in big tech is done, but it's I there's something else out there for me and I want to graduate into what's next. What was what was that like for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, since I've I've you know, I look at this not as a fork in the road that you know never changes and there are more seasons, I look at it, what's my skill stack? What's my interest level? And where are these opportunities? And this is where, you know, I have, a, I have a technical background why I really embrace sales and finance. And like, that's been kind of the, the thing for me even today. That's, that's kind of the reason I do the job that I, I do because I love the opportunity to be able to move through all three of those. But whatever, you know, someone who's listening might, might see as their unique skill uh, stack, I think you have to take that into consideration. So, you know, if someone has something hyper unique, it's like, don't dismiss that as like this, like, oh, I have this weird skill or this strange experience, or, you know, I speak this language that, you know, maybe isn't, you know, considered like a global business language, like, don't discount any of that stuff, like go sit in a room and figure out how do you kind of pull this together? And, you know, just like you might do with a product where you're doing... Problem story fit. You're trying to do kind of your founder story fit or your, you know, kind of employee story fit to kind of figure out how all these pieces work together so you can inspire people and they understand, like, oh, this is what Christopher is amazing at. And when you, you know, are making yourself that one of one, there's just so many, you know, opportunities in general, but people don't know how to value you. And so that to me is the magic right um the you know is you know I, I like to tell folks you know when we talk about kind of working I know at least in the US a lot of western countries you know, like how much do you make is like one of these weird taboo things. That's either you know it's like it's embarrassing to ask, or you know it's kind of crude. Like you know we don't talk about those types of things. But just just from a practicality standpoint, you know somebody who makes one hundred fifty thousand dollars at a company uh, and someone who makes nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars, like they are not at the same financial velocity. But we might all say like, oh, they're six figure earners, right? Like it's like this boolean like one bucket of people. And, and so this idea that there are so many ways for you to take your skill set and, and go and leverage it, I think is important. But also, once you start turning that skill into dollars, just having clarity on um, kind of where you're at on your journey, I think is so, so important because, you know, you know, no offense to some of the folks who are early in career who maybe they've made their first million dollars. Like when I made my first million, it was like, amazing. It was transformative, right? Um, And I thought I had it all figured out. And I'm like, okay, there's so many seasons to this. Um, And so those folks are like on TikTok and YouTube telling folks like, I found the secret. And it's like, you know, it's like one of those things. If you've ever been to a fancy hotel where you know you think you're at the top floor, and then you find out the penthouse actually has its own elevator, um, there's also there's always another door. And so we're all leveling up in this game. And uh, yeah, just be really cognizant to the current season. Uh, and I'm sure you know many of the principles that that you teach on just kind of basic financial wellness is also part of this uh, this journey.
1: Well, this journey, and and I think for many of us, LaShawn, we're trying to understand many of us didn't come from money. I know I didn't come from money. Then all of a sudden you step into it. Then it's, it's two things. It's how do I manage it responsibly, you know, yeah. not go out and be, you know, some sort of, you know, multimillionaire cosplay. Cause we all know that it, you, you, you can lose it just as fast as you make it. And then it's, how do we start transitioning this into a, a, You know, combination, I call it a portfolio lifestyle where I have some of my dollars working for me. I'm also now taking my skill stack and I'm leveraging it to create multiple streams of income to then create, to support a lifestyle that I wanna live. Okay, I wanna have more time with my sons, I wanna have geographic independence. I, you know, these are some of the things that are important to me. But that's where I think people in technology understanding, going back to your story, which I think is is really relevant to when you focus on skills, you also then are aware and understand the money. And all the time being focused on business, how do you run and operate a business, Right. you can then get to a point where you say, okay, now how do I translate that into what's next for me? How do I graduate from a single full-time employer into now running a portfolio of things?
0: Once you kind of you know hit whatever your version of financial independence is, I think psychologically mm-hmm. a lot of things change, right? And so... You know i like when when i when i'm coaching or mentoring folks around their business you know someone you know may have aspirations of creating a unicorn someone else like we want to get to 100 million dollars of you know top line somebody else is like you know i just want to make a half a million dollars a year like everybody has different goals it's all good um i don't look at lifestyle business as a pejorative i'm like Living life in style sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> like, like, like,
0: that sounds pretty fantastic. So anyway, for me, when I have observed kind of an undeniable trend, uh, you, you may be familiar with the uh, Matt Ritley's book, The Rational Optimist, uh, which you know is you know, the punchline is look for a unique point of view where. The rest of the world is looking at things through the lens of pessimism and you see it you know, through the lens of optimism. Um, but you're also being rational. You're not just some pie in the sky. Your timing's off or your capital stack is like wonky. Like you really see something that you believe others don't see, but you see it in a positive light. Um, and there's this example after example he gives on kind of the economic upside when you you can take that approach and that's just been my inflection point you know web 1.0 web 2.0 I worked at this company you know that young people won't know called Motorola for a few years that was that was my first product manager job after uh, my MBA and You know, through all of those those hops, um, you know, I was like, all right, mobile. I mean, the reason I went back to Microsoft is to work on uh, this product uh, that we created called Hololens, which was a uh, mixed reality AR VR platform. And so, one team was working on hardware, another on OS, and I was working on the app stack and own product strategy there. And through that, it's like, all right, now you know, the Apple Vision. Pro is coming out next quarter. and I got like years of information in my head from jobs many, many moons ago um, for all of that stuff. And so when it comes time to you know look at a batch of companies who are like, we're building B2B apps on top of a- Apple vision Pro. I'll get it wrong plenty of times, but my batting average is gonna be way higher than other people um, because I understand the 3D, you know, real-time rendering art pipeline. I understand the thermal issues. I, like there's all these things, you know, fatigue of having, you know, a computer on your face. Um, you know, there's cert- you know, you're know, you not gonna be on social doing news and things like this. It's gonna be a productivity focused type tool. And that's just one anecdote of all of these pieces. And so when I look at things like Gen AI, um, you know, it all connects, right? Because when I worked on HoloLens, I ended up managing a computer vision team. And then that really got me deep into AI. And so while I'm not an expert at LLMs, I have a a really good handle on understanding artificial intelligence or at least how we're applying it today. And so all of those things start to compound. And, And so I'm a really big believer that when you can see these trends, these mega trends that are going to have huge tailwinds, like whether you go employee route or you go operator, you know, business owner route. Um, if you figure out your ability to be right often, um, you know that's that's actually a leadership tenet at my, at, uh, at Amazon. Um, that you're you're right a lot, right? That's actually the name of the, the leadership tenet. Um, that's really really powerful because a lot of technology, regardless of you know how you show up and what vehicle you're 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 kind of generating money, um, it's about timing. Like we can all be you know, technologists and talk about the future, but it's like, okay, what quarter, what year, what decade does it hit? Like that's where the money's at, right? We're all right if you give us a 50 year horizon. So anyway, I just wanted to come back to say like, for me, the impetus was like seeing this undeniable moment where it was like, oh my goodness, this next wave is so, so magical. And, you know, I kind of figure out, all right, where can I create the most leverage? And once you've kind of hit financial independence, I just think the psychology shifts on how you look at that, what time horizon you're willing to play and how risky does it feel? Uh, And for me, this this is not a risky move at all because I have that conviction.
1: Well, I think because you have the conviction, you have the skills and you've obviously you've built enough businesses to understand also how it works. And I think and this is this is a good transition point for us to start leading into the second half of the conversation what I observe for people who work in big tech or even people who work in startups, they take them through IPOs and they generate wealth and they honestly have enough wealth to become financial independent, financially independent, meaning they could rely on that wealth to transition into something else. They would arguably need some cash flow for it, but they don't have it presently. They struggle with this transition. They struggle with, okay, how do I now turn this what i have my wealth or how do i you know maybe i haven't ventured out and been my own entrepreneur how do i transition it this is why pattern recognition understanding what you're doing what you're building i think is really important and i want to go in the second half of the show i want to go and and do a bit of a a deep dive a bit of a you know reverse engineering into how you built kager which is a micro pe company of multiple businesses that i think some you acquired some you built because As we get into tech, number one, when you are working in big tech, it can burn you out, right? There there is a a lifestyle, a 24 by seven, you're plugged in, great rewards, but eventually it needs to stop, I think, for your physical and mental health and understanding how you transition to something is really important. So we're going to dig into Kegger and all that stuff in a few minutes. We're going to be right back. Just hold on. All right. We are back here with LaShawn Smith. And LaShawn runs Kegger. Kegger is a micro PE firm that's made up of how many companies do you, are you holding now?
0: Uh, four companies. I've written 12 checks. I can talk more about uh, how we're doing a roll-up right now. But uh, all of those have not been successful, so we can get into that as well. But uh, four companies... And uh, again, the learning process that we talked about on the employee side, you know, I've been learning as well on the investment side as well.
1: Well, let's talk. I mean, I think first and foremost, let's start off with what is the thesis that you have for for Kegger? Because it sounds like it's I know I've read it, so it's very clear, very succinct. What would you say the thesis is for Kegger?
0: At its core, you know, my belief is audience and automation are key pillars to the future of, uh, you know. Digital and software businesses. Uh, I'm starting to to look at local B2B home services and some kind of you know what folks might call boring businesses and figuring out how those levers uh, get incorporated as well. Um, but most simply, you know, I look at. Anything that's going on at the macro level on the on the sell side, you know, the the levers around customer acquisition um, continue to get out of hand, and so you have you know price makers in the form of Alphabet and Meta on advertising, and I just think paid advertising is a very dangerous kind of foundation uh, to drive your business. And then on the sales side, you know, when you get to any meaningful scale, you know, know, I'll stick to SAS because that's an area where I know uh, I know pretty well Um, at a certain point, your sales you know, mechanism starts to bump up against the world-class engines, right? You're selling against a Salesforce or what have you. And so folks do all sorts of things. They try to partner, they hit their marketplace, they, you know, we're, we're in coopetition. Um, but at some point, you know, Microsoft, Oracle, or Salesforce, or someone's gonna have a better sales motion than you. And this is why you see a lot of those tuck-in acquisitions happen over the years, it's like, okay, We can build this to 500 salespeople and we're not going to sell our our product, which actually may be better than some of these engines. And so the counter to me to that is, You know, folks finding ways to continue to optimize a traditional high touch uh, sales funnel or to really figure out how to operationalize a low touch funnel. And that's what I believe is uh, is a huge unlock for these smaller businesses, Um, much more challenging to do at scale. Uh, But if someone says, hey, you know, there's a business and this is going to cap out at, at 10 or 20 million in top line. I believe a very human driven brand, um, you know, with content marketing, organic marketing, um, really is the unlock for these and you can't rush it and this is you know kind of tied to the capital type this is why i don't think they're very good fits for for vc um you can't blitz scale your way with this process you know sometimes it can take you know months and months it could take a year and a half for for you know you to start seeing some benefits there and so you really need this patient capital to go pull that off and so audience is the the first pillar Automation on the back end and just being very efficient. Um, the way I like to describe it more more actionably is I'm trying to um, run async companies, right? And I found that to be the descriptor that can help. Because if I generically say automation or or, or something like that, it can just be used so many so many ways. Um, but we see what happens when you have a remote first. Organization that says, "Hey, um, we don't need everybody at this stand-up on this one time of the day, um, where you know somebody's up at you know, you know some odd hour of the day, and then the other person is like, like, how can we change, right?" And so the idea of, I mean, we do a ton of you know video loom type um, recordings, so we don't need meetings. Uh, we're a writing first culture, so you know you write it down, so you're not freestyling in the course of a meeting, you're not thinking the ideas on the fly. And so there's a bunch of these kind of kind of best practices, uh, but the real kind of investment thesis there is if you can build an async company, you can start to decouple all of the the strenuous points across the kind of the big beats of sales delivery and support. And so I'm just on a mission to, to look for those types of companies. More specifically, I'm in the process of uh, a, a small rollup uh, to service small businesses kind of throughout their value chain. So how do they start grow and sell? Um, you know, if you've ever worked with you know an investment banker who's gonna go help a company, you know, sell and they go work with a small business, many times the small business isn't sophisticated. Um, or the deal's too small for the right type of investment banker to pay attention to them. So basic things like their data room, their SIM, uh, that's their confidential uh, information memorandum, like all the stuff it takes where you like, I put years in this business. I got it to the right place. Now I'm ready to go, you know, get this, this check. Um, I've learned a lot through this process on, you know, how do you you know not just grow, but sell the business. And so what uh, I'm doing right now is rolling up a, a set of, uh, small tools and software plays to help folks do more DIY on this. so they don't always have to get priced out of the market because you know they're, they're a small sub50 million dollar deal that a traditional bank won't won't pay attention to. So that's the lane it's audience and automation and it's really focused on you know helping you know these smaller businesses uh, start grow and, and sell themselves. And there's all sorts of interesting conversations that spill out of that um, but much of it is a contrarian view that says you don't have to grow a massive business to win. Um, You just need to be very cognizant of your capital stack because the more of that pie you own, you know, there's that that saying that I hear VCs, some of my VC friends say, well, LaShawn, you know, do they want to own a, you know, a big slice of 0% or a small slice of 100%? And it's like, sure, like, yes, mathematically, but most of those, you know, folks who are going down the VC path you know, it's not going to hit to their third, fourth or fifth try. Right. And so that's a 15, 20 year journey that you're committing to. And if you just look at the cash on cash, there's so many ways to just make more predictable money, um, not getting on that, you know, that hamster wheel. And so I just look at it, you know, call back to our early part of the conversation as a uh, another path, uh, not the path, but another path. Uh, and, uh, so as you hear me talking about this, it's not just what I do. Um, I'm also kind of beating the drum to kind of drive awareness that this is another lane that people can consider.
1: Right. And so it's, it's really, I, cause I know you're focused on the automation, the, is it attention? Was that the first one?
0: Uh, audience and automation. Yep.
1: Audience and automation. And then you're you're looking to buy these these high cash flowing businesses. So you're creating a portfolio where you're spending your time and effort, but it's also kicking off significant cash flow. Did right. I read that right? That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And, and that I think is so important for people to understand because, you know, it goes back to, you know, one of the things when you talked earlier about the rational optimist, I think there's there's two things that I've observed, and this is where I'm trying to bring data to the table, is When it comes to working for tech equity, so many people look through the lens of startups and say, oh, the only way you can make money is through startups, because that's what the media talks about, the drama, the ups, the downs, the failures, the successes, when it's like, no, let's actually look at the boring equity of working for larger companies. And then it's also the same thing in portfolios. People get stuck in their portfolios because the majority of technology employees that I know, they earn their wealth in one or two companies, they have probably 60% of their portfolio is that single or or two stocks, which is incredibly risky. Or the rest is in the market and some is in venture, where again they're in this whole venture mindset that says, okay, I'm trying to get two or three things to hit. I mean, going through, you know, the this interest rate rise and seeing, you know, asset prices come down and you know, some a lot of uh, you know, startups failing. I've I've seen a lot of people get crushed by this. Yeah, because, the markdowns
0: are going crazy right now, 80, 90 cents on the dollar.
1: Right. Versus to your point, if you look at these. This, you know, contrarian thinking, I think of, you know, Cody Sanchez, people like yourself are saying, let's go buy these boring, high cash flowing businesses, anchor your portfolio in that and move, you know, I'm not saying that you have to liquidate everything else, but I'm saying, how do you actually move a portion over there and create this as a business that you operate? And so I'm curious to understand for Kegger, you know, what is, what is your current role and what are some of the businesses that you're spending time on right now?
0: Yeah. So the, the part I just want to underscore that you said that's very important is as, as you look at this, you want to not only have the right assets, but you want to figure out what the right allocation is for your destination and your path. Right. And so I, I don't preach a way like, you know, I don't have a system. Um, what I've learned is I will get myself in trouble if I invest in certain things. Uh, before, you know, I invested full time. I had done a number of angel deals And my first vintage, I got really fortunate because I just invested alongside of other people. I had enough sense to say, well, um, let me go with some folks who are pretty smart at this already. And, you know, those are really tiny checks, right? You know, those, uh, those early angel checks are, you know, 25, 50, a hundred thousand dollars. So these aren't, these aren't big money checks, but you need to have a couple million two, $3 million set aside because you need to have a good chunk to write those initial checks and have a little more for pro rata if you're really going to get serious about it. Right. And so when I, what I learned from that um, is number one, I looked at a lot of deals, right. To get to 30 some odd checks, you have to, you have to look at a lot of deals to to get to that um, level of throughput and I found it was like, all right, LaShawn, you have to know yourself. Um, and uh, I got really excited about the idea. like, I'm going to be a super angel and I'm going to be the best advisor. And like in many of these cases, I did get advisor shares in, in, in addition to the check. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll have a couple board seats and like, you know, I just told myself this crazy story. And uh, really, at the end of the day, um, when there's something on fire and there is value to add, you know, folks will give you a call and say, Hey, I'm thinking through this, this thing. Um, But you're not in the mix, right? Uh, You're, you're, you're the phone, a friend. And so I found that like, it was too far away from the making. I was like, no, like, I'm not at the stage where I want to be that hands off. Um, At the same time, you know, I didn't want to go back to big tech and be in those situations where, oh my goodness, I'm in some, you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly business review of one of my peers. And, you know, he's a nice guy, but I don't really care about his business. I want to focus on my thing. And, you know, like all, all the the meeting overhead and other things that happens. Uh, and so I knew that wasn't the way. And so the the reason I, I put those as kind of the, the starting points is I don't have a passive business at all. Right. I don't run a hold co. Uh, the reason I don't, you know, I love that word, um, you know, and in, in it's kind of like simplicity. But for the most part, um, really, a co means that every operator has, like, is running these businesses, you know, without, you know, any type of uh, interaction. And uh, while I've I've tried that, uh, I found where I'm both most energized and where I can be most helpful is where I'm on the hook for setting up a lot of the process. Uh, And I'm effectively the coach. Right. So there's still somebody who owns that track, but it's more akin to how I would be a manager of managers inside of a big company. Um, And, you know, there's some checks and balances. So I'm not in the approval flow for for work getting done, um, but I am part of the the strategic kind of driving um, of these businesses. And then I'm using phantom shares, which uh, for folks who aren't familiar with that. It's an old concept that has kind of found, uh, you know, new life. It's a type of profit sharing where you let folks participate in the distributions of a cash flow centric business based upon some set of incentives. Uh, But if they quit, then those go back to the pool and you get to reallocate them so you don't end up with some wonky cap table. And so I really love those types of tools. And what I'm attempting to do is really be be thoughtful about um, who are the folks who they have a gap that doesn't need to be fixed, right? So that's another thing we think about leadership. It's like, well, you have these gaps. And I'm more of the strength finders type person. It's like, okay, like, let's not be egregious with your gaps, but let's lean into what really makes you, you solid. So um, some of the businesses that I have that, you know, are pretty pedestrian, one is a visual identity firm. And you're just like, well, people could go get a a logo off of Fiverr for twenty-five bucks, and you know, consistently, uh, the guy who runs that, you know, he's doing fifteen to twenty thousand-dollar uh, branding projects. And the reason is like, you know, like they're not chasing down a customer who, um, you know, needs a hundred-dollar logo. Um, they're chasing down folks who need a fifty or hundred thousand-dollar package, and it sounds very cost competitive because of how they deliver that. Uh, and so that business. Um, with the right sales machine, like it just prints money. It's not a big business. It's not massive, but um, it's highly, it's highly profitable. Um, another example is a, uh, I bought a small um, web app development shop. Those are a dime a dozen, right? There's like, how, how would you even survive in that world? And I just made a small tweak and said, you all aren't going to do any more of these, these kind of trivial, um, uh, just kind of web apps because a lot of these kind of SaaS apps are just kind of CRUD apps anyway, right? They're just forms over data Uh, and reposition them to conversational products. And so they're a product design company and they only focus on this current wave of conversational products. And so folks are trying to figure out how do I incorporate, you know, Anthropic or OpenAI or some type of LLM into my business. Uh, And so there's just a clear lane, right? And so these are not meant to be in this current wave businesses that will, you know, survive 15, 20 years. I know that. Um, But the cash that's throwing off, you know, from those companies um, helps me kind of cycle it into the next wave of ideas. Uh, And as I said, I'm really passionate about this idea of helping small business owners move through the full life cycle. And now um, that there's more cash to play with, I'm looking at some of these uh, traditional things outside of tech, Um, you know, like home services, construction, trades and what have you that have kind of a local moat. Because, you know, I'm here in Seattle you know, there's somebody in St. Louis who could just copy my business. All good. I don't have a plan to go into St. Louis. And uh, there's all sorts of goodness if you can take audience and automation and then apply it to those types of businesses as well. And again, all of this stuff is connected. You know, all that goodness that I learned at a big company can now be applied to how we run our uh, our goal setting, how we do strategic prioritization, um, how we do our experimentation plan. That's one of the things that I learned at Amazon that was very powerful on setting financial budgets for your experimentation. So it's like, all right, what's your experimentation cadence? All right, weekly, how much is your? are you willing to spend on experiments in either lost revenue Cloud costs, employee time. There's all sorts of attributes here that you can calculate um, over the next 90 days. And you might say, "All right, we're willing to spend. You know, at our tiny little companies, we might spend eighty thousand on experiment. You know, when I was at a big company, we might say we're going to spend twelve million dollars. You know, on experiment for two weeks. Um, And you go A/B test or multivariate test this thing, and you are writing these things like hypotheses. You say, we hypothesize that X, and then you know what you're going to do based upon outcome A, B, or C. Uh, And when you write like that, all I have to do is show up for a 45-minute weekly business review and do a one-on-one with the operator. And then off they go, you know, and and I can I, I believe I can scale to about six or eight of those, and so I just love these types of approaches where you're taking the best ingredients from all these different um, you know environments and kind of making this fusion dish of a company.
1: Taking your skill stack that you've developed so well, and now you're you're focusing it at these these different companies, you know, generating cash flow that then becomes this essentially this self perpetuating machine and. Yeah. And it's focused on cash flow, which I think is, to me, having a a portion of your portfolio that's that's kicking off some good, healthy cash flow is just, I mean, what I've seen as I've been studying the portfolios of the ultra wealthy is you need to have a healthy portion of cash flow to be able to maintain and reinvest as you go forward. Just having growth only creates a lot of risk.
0: Yeah. And, and tying that, um, I do think it's important. I think your, your audience uh, will understand this. To also think about your tax strategy in all of this, and so when you're when this stuff is this cash is getting thrown off, I'll just give you a little structured, a little insight to how my my business is structured. I have uh, what you know, legally what looks like a hold co, even though I have a pretty active role in in much of this work, um, where all of these initial baseline um, deals get parked. And that's so they just look like departments, right? And so all of that uh, can be cross collateralized. Um, and so the CPA knows how to go chunk this out. But it's it's no different than, you know, uh, a big company having, you know, you know, consumer business and a B2B business, or, you know, what have you, we're just a little baby version of that. And then when something gets to uh, enough cash or some other legal reason, um, when it gets spun out, it's an it's its own entity, usually a subsidiary of, of that. And uh, but the beauty of all of this is uh, a lot of that cash can even compound inside of the company, and then when you need to make a distribution, you know, figure out what you're going to do. I found that while I love real estate, I have to be an LP in real estate, like because like when I when I first sold my company, I did Christopher, I did all kind of crazy stuff. I I invested in movies. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, I mean, I was fortunate that some of these things uh, did well, uh, but it was really more of uh, uh, the outcome of Zerp and all of this like cheap money floating around that um, the streamers were just buying everything that that showed up uh, and because they had, you know, they had cheap money. Uh, and so that's not a, you know, a reliable business plan. Uh, I built two spec homes uh, and uh, again, like just super random things, right? Uh, And what I found was uh, like, I need to stay in my lane. Um, I know how to make digital products, like that's my thing. And so my uh, kind of investment strategy is very, very simple. Um, I have a fair amount of my net worth locked up in my investment vehicle. I still have a decent size of my um, RSUs that I haven't moved into uh, uh, an ETF or some type of index, because I believe in, you know, a company like Microsoft or Amazon, and I think it has some some more way to go. But really, the, the bulk is just, uh, I have some T-bills for my short term, um, I have a bucket of cash, and I have, you know, uh, a decent amount of money in VTI. Like, like, this is the most simple, you know, again, not financial advice, but like the most simple, basic thing. And then I have um, uh, four pieces of real estate that throw off a little bit of cash, uh, but they're fully managed. Like, I I, like, I'm horrible at anything related to uh, the operational element of real estate. And so anyway, I say that to give some broad strokes of like, like how I've structured my system. And what I found is, um, if I want exposure to say real estate, I need to be an LP, I need to give somebody else some money and just say, like, if that's your life, like professionally that you're doing, like go be great at that. Um, And then I'm going to focus here instead of thinking like, Hey, that's interesting over there. What you got, Christopher? Um, maybe I could uh, partner with you. Like, no, LaShawn, stop doing all of that stuff. Like that just that just gets me into trouble.
1: I think that's uh, such a wise, you know, self observation that that you've made because as we transition from full time employment to what I call, you know, the portfolio lifestyle, you're just really truly managing your portfolio you need to have certain sections that are on automatic that you are letting experts do those things because our passion and our joy is going to be spending our time operating the things that give us the juice, right? The things that give us that feedback that activate our zone of genius. And I have definitely seen people tripping over their own shoelaces because they want to have control in all aspects and that ultimately weighs them down. And it's, you know, the same adage as if you're, you're in corporate and you're trying to have too much control over your team, you're never going to be successful because you're not moving to your zone of genius. You're trying to do everything, you know, in half measures. Yeah, totally. 100%. So what's, what's the future right now for, for Kegger?
0: Yeah. So we are going to uh, roll out this new brand uh, early part of next year. And again, you know, think about, Companies, you know, let's let's take a financial you know, fintech product like Wealthfront. Um, what they what they find early on in almost all of these is like, okay, we could do robo investing, but now we need to do this other thing, and like you know, you, you start to tack on all of these pieces. And so my focus, uh, you know, for 2024 is really to start finding all the gaps. For the kind of the, the small business journey and determining where to partner and where to buy, um, because some of these, you know, are regulatory, um, you know, think or you know, I don't, I'm not going to buy a um, a white label bank, right? There's all these neo banks out there, um, you know, that's that's a silly thing. So that that's going to be more of a partnership. Um, but then there's other things where it's clearly. You know, it should be part of of the, the fold, and the goal is really to figure out how to you know fill all those gaps. So I'm doing what's called a um, an outcome based community, uh, and my the community here are small business owners, and the the transformation of the outcome that I'm banking on is the belief that. Financial independence through business ownership is, you know, a huge, uh, you know, predictable way. In spite of all the wonkiness in the economy, for folks to to uh, you know get FI without a ton of permission. And so that's where I'm I'm going to continue to focus. And along the way, I just love to talk to anyone who is on their journey as an entrepreneur, especially if they're looking at smaller businesses because I can pattern match, I learn things, you know. conversations like these spark ideas. And so I'm out here just continuing to kind of figure out how do I fill this? Uh, and uh, we don't have a ton of time for this, but I'll give you a quick anecdote on how I look at the market. I have this simple definition of a market. A market is a group of individuals who share a problem that's painful, recurring, and is um, uh, you know, quite pervasive, right? And ideally, if it's a great market, it also is a group of folks who have the willingness to pay for that. Uh, and I try to uh, to validate that as early in the process as possible. So while, you know, I still, you know, I do very few incubation type deals. Um, the, the beauty of acquiring a company is you figure out if there is a market there, right? Like, you know, you just go look at their, <laughs> you get access to their Stripe account and their bank account, and you can go see how durable are, you know, is, is this money. Um, and so as I'm going through, I'm also trying to figure out is there any shift in behavior or regulatory issues or technology pieces that are going to allow different segments or industries of these small businesses to survive and thrive in a different way? You know, for better or worse, you know, people, you know, I don't mess with F and B like food and beverage or restaurants, like I don't know how to add value customer cash flows are very brittle, Um, but there are all sorts of things that are like core to our economy, especially at the local level. And I'm just super, super interested in how can we reinvent some of those? And so whether, you know, somebody has a crawl space company or a roofing company, um, I I just like, there's untapped opportunity there for these to be economic engines. Uh, And just, you uh, you know, just a finer point on that. If you look at what the folks in Groundworks are doing down in San Diego, um they started as a, P- a pe firm uh the the investor the gp shifted to becoming an operator to go run this business and they do foundation repair right so so it's a pretty vanilla business and uh the last public number i heard uh, this is a private uh is pe obviously um was 800 million dollar top line a year right fixing Foundations, <laughs> right? Um, and and there are all of these businesses that uh, are, are in that range where you could do, you know, tens in this case, hundreds of millions of dollars, and you're never going to be, you know, in the media. No one's going to know your name. Like it's all good, um, but you're really kind of driving this this real economic engine and going full circle. I love this idea of. Go get your personal finances in order. You know, grow the gap, delever yourself. You know, working in tech, um, then use that money when you're ready to either buy a company or figure out a way to de-risk starting a company. And then I like the the base ten approach. Go make two dollars, then twenty, then two hundred, and you know, and eventually. To me, the psychological point for a lot of folks is um, once they have a couple hundred grand in their bank, Charlie Munger used to say a hundred grand, um, you believe it can work. Um, I believe when you're that next zero, you're at $2 million. Now you're like, okay, um, I have enough breathing room and uh, you can kind of like, you know, kind of move with intention. Uh, and then there, from there, you know, you're kind of in the club and uh, it's just, you know, kind of time to get to work. So these are all the things that are energizing me and keeping me excited. And the goal is really to not only kind of make money but do it for a customer base that I really love.
1: And that's so important that we we leverage everything that we've learned and the opportunities we have now to to really make impact. And yeah. I'm, you know, huge subscriber to that as well. And especially right now there is that, you know, we're in the middle of this great transition of wealth, right? From the yep. baby boomers to the next generation and people talk a lot about assets. The reality is there are a lot of businesses Right now, and I just saw one in my hometown of Oroville, California. There was a, uh, you know, it was a uh, sporting store, but also behind they also had a business where they uh, sold a lot of uh, reloading shell equipment, mm-hmm. and they didn't have anybody to pass it on to, and so you know it was a thriving, successful business part of that community that probably could have gone on for years. They ended up shutting it down. Yeah, you know, yeah, selling I've seen it that for parts. So many
0: times, um, there's a fence company that's closing down. Not too far from me, and you know it's like fences. (laughs) So it's like 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 what is this? And the reason um, the business did so well was uh, the big box stores, you know, the Home Depots, Lowe's, what have you. um, They don't have enough stock or the specialty components, and so there's this still this this you know really practical gap. And uh, yeah, they're likely going to be shutting it down um, just because they can't find a buyer to kind of kind of keep that going. And these are not complex businesses, you know, you know how you think about you know, all your add-ins and, and valuing a business, sometimes the owner is not properly accounting for their contributions. That's why they have, you know, metrics like seller discretionary earnings and other um, kind of evals. But, but once you actually normalize and see like how much cash is actually kind of spilling out of these companies, there are plenty where, you know, if you're great at hiring the right people, there's enough cash to pay them. Uh, and then your forced depreciation or however you're going to drive up the value of that business, doesn't have to be reinventing it or totally changing things. A lot of times, it's just these small tweaks uh, that really transform things.
1: And in many times, for for us in technology, it's bringing bringing technology.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated. Um, I know we're, we're we're going tactical and kind of abstract in this conversation. So hopefully, folks are keeping up as we zoom, as they say. But. One of the things that I've been guilty of uh, as someone who knows how to make things, I'm like, oh, we'll build an internal piece of software for that. <laughs> and it's just like, dumb, like, don't do that. Um, and so when I look at some of the current batch of AI tools, um, you know, we'll, we'll put the more technical tools to the side, but even simple things like Microsoft Copilot, you know, it's $10 for a Microsoft 365 license, $35 for a Copilot license, and for $45 a month. Um, you now have given that team member, basically their own assistant. And, you know, like these are the things that I, I feel operators should really be looking into. There's the switching costs obviously for getting in and out of these tools. And so that has to be factored in, but that's a big deal. And there's so much of this goodness where it's just like, okay, you know, is there just a spreadsheet where you already have your data? just have your, your team members talk to that data like that. You don't need a custom expensive workflow tool. Um, that's a $45 a month solution. And, and I'll put a, an asterisk. Um, I believe that this next wave of, of software products for business are also going to be disrupted on the business model side because compute has gotten so cheap. You know, We, we talk about GPUs and AI and all these types of things, but the actual cost to run a basic SaaS uh, product has like plummeted. And so we know how to build these tools, they've gotten much, much cheaper. And I actually think that per user pricing is going to be under duress over the next few years. And that's an opportunity for investors, because the, you know, the the beauty of the resilient, um, you know, recurring revenue of SaaS is like, you know, maybe one of the second best business models of all time. And that the what's lovely about that for folks is that you can collateralize it like you know, some type of annuity stream. Um, But I I believe even that's going to be attacked because there's smarter ways to build. And so if you're an investor or you're a builder, um, don't just think about, you know, what the tech is doing. What's the new latest language, you know, large language model. But like, how can the same product that people already have on their P&L, how can you make a 50% better version that you sell for 10 cents um, on the dollar? I mean, this was the whole Google business model when they went, Uh, with, uh, with paid ads as they competed with, you know, broadcast television and print, they said, listen, we're, we're, we're way cheaper, like, like orders of magnitude cheaper. And so, you know, I'm just using SAS as an example, but I think we're going to see some price compression on some of these things. And that's also an investment opportunity.
1: Truly, truly. Well, I have a feeling that you and I could keep jamming on this all
0: day, but (laughs) uh,
1: no, thank you so much for sharing with us, you know, your journey, you know, the skill stacking, everything you learn and how you've translated that into kegger i want to end up we're going to do a a special fire round because i know that you uh subscribe to stoic philosophy so we got five questions around stoicism that we're going to throw your direction here so how has stoicism influenced your approach to entrepreneurship
0: Uh, i'll give you two quick things there first i love to say move without permission and so I'm always looking for opportunities where I do not need a gatekeeper to move forward, focus on what I can control. Uh, the second half of that is uh, I like to start from the end. Part of stoicism says, keep the end in mind and then work your way back. We know that, but many times we don't operational, operationalize our lives through that lens.
1: And yeah, it's so important, we really do. Yeah. So uh, can you get an example of a challenging business situation that stoicism helped navigate that adversity?
0: Well there's so many but you know in, in spirit of a kind of a lightning round you know I'll say first the the principle is focus on execution right so I found myself time and time again getting caught up in you know the latest tech the, the newest thing like look at this prototype that I built over the weekend everyone isn't it so magical and if you uh, I'll, I'll go to another Matt Ridley book we called him out earlier uh, with the rational optimist he has a more recent book called uh, how innovation works and he talks about the flows of inventors um, rarely benefit from the economic, you know, uh, kind of uh, upside. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't be an inventor, but just look at history. Uh, innovators take that prototype or that invention, and they go figure out how to sell it, how to make it cheaper, how to you know, drive awareness. Uh, and a lot of what happens in tech, um, especially in large tech companies, um, is you're part of the innovation system. And sometimes, you know, a company might say oh, you know, Oracle didn't build that, they just sold that or stole that or, you know, and there's all this language happens, but I don't think folks really understand there's a taxonomy here and the inventor class is different than the innovation class. And the innovation class is different than the operator class. And, and so what I had to learn was many times I was misplaced in what position the business was in and I should have been in the operator class trying to take someone else's innovation and just selling it, operationalizing it for a specific customer. And I was over here trying to invent something. And it's no wonder it didn't work. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the company I was talking about with the um uh, the SMS to stadium, that's a great example where like, we built some really cool tech and, uh, you know, real time, there's all these things back in the day where you didn't have enough cellular coverage and we had figured out all these these redundancy hops and like technically it's very interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, what we should have done is figured out, all right, can we operationalize this sales engine? Uh, and we didn't do that. And so, you know, just focusing on execution I think is really important and figure out, do you really wanna be an inventor, a, a innovator or an operator? None of those are wrong, but make sure you move with intention.
1: That's great. What uh, what stoic practices do you incorporate into your daily routine?
0: So two things. Right now, just now, you know, that control how you react. That's something that I'm always reminding myself. Uh, someone prompts you with something, how am I going to act? More tactical and maybe actionable for the audience is I practice uh, calendar journaling pretty religiously. And the short version of this framework is you go through your calendar two to four times a day you have things that you booked on your calendar but sometimes you actually spent that time a little differently the meeting ended up early and you called yourself learning and you watched a educational video on YouTube you said you were going to uh, go write this memo but you know you took a longer you know lunch break and this is not about hustle culture or like squeezing out every in um, you know kind of drop of productivity um, what it's it's about is treating your, time budget the same way you you treat your bank account budget, right? So when you log into your bank account, you see how much money you have. I say, when you log into your calendar, you see how many minutes you have to spend that week and how can you be very intentional. And the punchline of this tactic is you go back, I do it in 15 minute increments and I go refactor everything I did. And the point of the exercise is not to show anybody or to publish it, but it's to say, LaShawn, you said your destination, what you wanna accomplish in the next quarter year, decade is X. I have it written down. And then you spent your time here and I'm checking myself, holding myself accountable throughout the day. And so I love this framework because you don't have to buy a new piece of software. Um, You don't have to be obsessive as LaShawn and do 15 minute increments. You can do 30 or 60 Uh, and you don't have to keep the streak. My streak has been going on. The current one is about two and a half years that I've logged. My, my life in 15 minute increments, um, but do it for, you know, like a detox, do it for a week or 30 days. And you'll see like, all right, I probably shouldn't have watched this extra three hours of, of Netflix this week. And again, no judgment, right? Um, just ask yourself, what is your destination? And if you're violating your own stated destination, then maybe you want to spend your minutes in a different way. Wow.
1: That's very, very powerful. I like that. Yeah. What advice would you give to tech employees or entrepreneurs who are interested in the Stoic approach?
0: I think the big one is is don't pay attention to status. Uh, Naval Ravikant talks a, a lot about this, uh, but it's just something that I really have to uh, remind myself because it's easy to get drawn in that game as you kind of go along the way. A very, a very simple way to state this is don't pay for TechCrunch articles. And, and like, like people will understand, like the same, you know, like Forbes is probably another good one where, you know, if somebody wants to cover your startup because you're doing something great, like fantastic. But when you raise funds, uh, let's say you're a venture back, you know, company. Um, you know, many times they're going to connect you with a publicist and that PR firm is going to say, we're going to help make you famous and we're going to go get some coverage for your company. And a lot of these placements are paid or pseudo paid, and it feels good to see so-and-so just raised X million dollars. And guess what? Your customers don't read TechCrunch. Um, And so just getting your head out of the social reinforcement of LinkedIn and these other places where where all of us live and we see each other and we're trying to compare each other. And it's like, oh, my buddy just, you know, raised X million. I remember this real story. I know this lightning round baby super quick. Um, buddy of mine raised $15 million for his startup and our, we had ideas at a similar time. And I was just like sulking almost. And I was like, like, good for him. Like this is like one of my best friends. And I was like, Man, but he raised 15 million. I mean, it was basically a a $15 million seed round. So like, this is a meaningful, you know, size seed round, right? Um, and like super sharp person with pedigree. So this, you know, I'm not surprised that this happened, but then I'm like, well, where's my $15 million for this idea? And like, you got to look inward, uh, focus on what you can control. And so, so much of this stuff is just. Um, just ignoring status. And, and I think status is a proxy of our measuring where we are in our journey and remind yourself that you're in competition with yourself.
1: Wow, it's really powerful. Yep. Um, and so what do you think are the key benefits overall of just embracing this that you felt, you know, being in
0: business, being in tech? So the name of my company is Kager Investments, You know, compound annual growth rate. And I really believe compounding is the magic. And so I didn't pick a financial metric just because it's like, oh, this is all about money. Um, I believe we can compound our personal development, our relationships with each other. And if you really look at operationalizing how you, you show up day to day, Um, you know, that kind of get 1% better every day. To me, that is the magic. And we know that compounding is exponential when you really commit in that manner. And so I always say, like, I got to get back to the making. I have a North Star that is six words, three sentences, know thyself, make things stay free. And that is really driven by these stoic principles to make sure that I'm focusing on LaShawn and not everything else that might be happening around me.
1: That's so good. Well, LaShawn, I can't thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for the time. I appreciate you being here and uh, we'll see you next time. Great to hang. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I just have one ask. Please go to techcareersandmoneynews.com Yes, techcareersandmoneynews.com and subscribe to our newsletter. That's where you can get weekly information on how to grow your career, build wealth, and meet your financial goals. Thank you.